All right, let's go. There we go. Hey, everybody. I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. I'm Kai Rizdal, late to the studio, of course. Anyway, Wednesday, 31st of January, it's a podcast. Yes, it's a podcast. Today, we are going to do some news and then some smiles. So uh, let's get into it. Kai, you go first because you're quite newsy with it. I'm just, I'm I'm newsy and I'm irritated and I'm also a little over-caffeinated. So just, you know, let that be the fair warning. Um, oh, I had coffee today. <laughs> Did you? Oh, I wow. Am, and you know that's unusual. Yes. So I'm, yes. I probably beat you on being over-caffeinated. You, you, may, you may well. Uh, <laughs> except I've just had my fifth cup of the morning. Of course, I've been up now for oh. like eight and a half hours. Anyway, whatever. Mm. It's not about me. Um, so uh, social media companies, including Mark Zuckerberg of Meta and uh, Lindy Acarino at Twitter and the CEO of TikTok, whose name I can't remember right now. Sorry. We're up on Capitol Hill today in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing for a hearing on um sexually explicit and sexually inappropriate uh, material that is getting fed to our children on social media, which is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. Let me stipulate that full stop. Also, the mental damage that can be done to uh, impressionable children and young teenagers on social media is a very bad thing. Also, full stop. However, comma, I am absolutely out of gas with members of the legislative body of this country and I know they've been doing it for years. This is not new. This is just me being really irritated right now. Grandstanding and and beating up on uh, CEOs of companies who in many ways deserve to get beat up on, right? Social media companies, tobacco companies, big oil, take your pick, right? They all deserve to get beat up on. But then these legislators, senators specifically today, say, why do you let this happen? And yes, there is corporate responsibility. But let me just point out that the Congress of the United States has the power to make laws, and they so rarely, rarely, rarely do. And they use these opportunities to score political points. Senator Tom Cotton, I'm looking at you. Google it in today's hearing if you want to know what I mean. Hint, hint, it's about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and, and they just, they don't do anything, and it's making me crazy. It's making me crazy. That's it. It's a rant. It's an incoherent rant. But again, I'm over caffeinated. I think, yes, politicians have always used these hearings as an opportunity for grandstanding. I'm thinking, you know, uh, the Red Scare hearings and all that stuff. Sure, yeah. But <clears throat> I think that there were at least some boundaries to the topics, you know, yeah, yeah. when members of Congress would use the platform to score purely political points, right? I don't think a decade ago we would have expected a hearing on the sexual exploitation of children to have been an opportunity for political grandstanding as much yep. as, say, um, you know, companies having corporate profits that are too high mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that there is something different about the moment that we're in, in terms, and especially when you pair it with, as you said, the extraordinarily low productivity of Congress. Oh, it, it's unbelievable. And look, I, I, I don't even think you have to go back to a decade. We, we are, and maybe I'm dating myself here, but we all remember when, when Arn Hatch, a number of years ago, and I'm going to say five-ish, six-ish, asked Mark Zuckerberg how Facebook makes money. Right. And he was like, Senator, we sell ads. That was a genuine hearing in which 
Congress people, uh, senators in this case again, mm-hmm. were trying to figure out what was going on. And that's not happening here, you know? I, no, yeah, it's not. I, yeah, and that just, I'm, I'm, I'm so done with, uh, whatever. Go ahead. What do you got? I wonder, at some point, I'd love to, in one of our deep dives, look at what the actual solutions are. Because, you know, we talked about some of the problems with the... We talked about ranked choice voting. We talked about um, some other solutions to some of the political um, issues that we have in this country and the way that we pick our leaders. And I wonder if there are more solutions we can discuss when it comes to just limiting this kind of behavior. Are there rules changes that could happen in committees that keep them on task? Mm-hmm. Is there any political will for that kind of thing or, uh, uh, or possibility? Oh, Kim- Kimberly, 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 Kimberly. Political will? Political will? I know. All right. All right. Thank all right. All right. All right. All right. Okay. Let's move on to my news. Okay, you go. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, I know you love history. So here we go. Uh, there is a very interesting story. Well, really pair of stories in Politico. Um, The one I spotted today was in Politico magazine. The real reason we're stuck with Trump v. Biden is the headline. There's more than one thing wrong with the U.S. primary system. And it's talking about how the thing that we all know that most the vast majority of Americans do not want a Trump Biden rematch. And it is written by Jeffrey Cowan, who acknowledges that he played a role in creating the primary caucus system we have today. And that links back to another article that Politico had um, earlier this month. Did a young Democratic activist in 1968 pave the way for Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. These articles together talk about the fact that way back in the day, like not way back in the day, just in the 60s. um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Well, thank thank you for that. On behalf of those of us of a certain age, I appreciate that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Back prior to this point, um, a lot presidential candidates were pretty much chosen by the parties and, you know, the air quote smoke filled rooms. Mm -hmm. And so there was a big push to create a more democratic process for choosing presidential candidates that actually involved voters participating via primaries and caucuses. But that was supposed to allow for a variety of candidates to get into the mix for many states to participate over the course of the year leading up to the election. And that system has fallen apart. And so Cowan is sort of wrestling with his role in all of this because what's happened is not only has the primary and caucus system played to the extremes of both parties because those are the people who show up to vote that early. And it's front-loaded now in a way. So his piece that that ran today in Politico magazine is about the front-loading part. The fact that because states are voting so early or caucusing so early and eliminating candidates so early in the process that if something were to happen to Trump and or Biden mm-hmm. six months from now, what mm-hmm. are we going to do? Right. Haley would kind of be the presumptive nominee on the GOP side if she's still around. But what are we going to do on the Democratic side if, God forbid, you know, something happens to Biden? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guessing they would default to Harris. But 
what happened to that democratic process. And so Cowan, you know, makes a point um, saying at the end of the piece, which I think folks should go and read, at the very le- um, at the very least, the parties should take this year as a warning. This would be a good time for both parties to develop new guidelines for the selection of presidential candidates that allow the public to play a role in the non- nominating process, but keep it open well into the calendar year of the election. The two pieces are very interesting in terms of the history and also just in recognizing actually how risky where we are is in terms of the way that we choose our presidential candidates. So, yes. And uh, yes. And uh, look, I totally agree with all that. I think I think there I think a couple of things. Number one, um, I wonder how much of our present circumstance is because of the absolute domination of uh, the two actual incumbent or pretending to be incumbent candidates, right? I mean, Biden dominates the Democratic side because he is, of course, the actual incumbent president. Trump dominates for a lot of reasons, one of which is he's basically running as the incumbent. And it was, mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest, right? It was over before it started. Um, mm. so, so that's number one. Number two, um, the catch, of course, is that you have to get the states to agree with this somehow. And mm. and look, South Carolina and not really South Carolina so much, but New Hampshire and Iowa and South Carolina a little bit, I guess. They can't agree what day it is, much less who gets to go first, you know, because it's it's bragging rights and pissing contests and all this jazz. And, you're like, and we're on, just man. ignoring Nevada. because Oh, yeah. And oh, by the way, Nevada, which, you know, they they kind of ruled themselves out today or this year because they did as Trump as Trump bidded them do, bided them do. Uh, and and change the rules so that he would get all the delegates. You know, it's um, it's a really complicated problem, and I'm glad these folks are bringing it up. But it's a super complicated problem. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah. to be solved, hopefully another day, else, maybe yeah. possibly. Yeah. Let's get to those smiles. All right, let's get to the smiles. I will say as this thing goes here, and I know I'm talking over you, Juan Carlos. I'm really sorry. I don't have a smile because, as you can tell, I'm a little bit cranky today. Also, I ran out of time. There's that too. Yeah, that happens. Right. I was trying to watch the uh, Fed press conference yeah. to see if I could see Nancy, but missed yeah. her. Uh, Nancy Marshall Ginzer, yes. by the way, our right. reporter in Washington, who always goes to the Fed conferences, press conferences faithfully, and uh, like to see her mm-hmm. in the room. Sure. Um, okay, mine is very sciency. There is a new study out of the Turku PET Center in Finland, and I'm reading here from fizz.org, that shows that music evokes similar emotions and bodily sensations all over the world. So basically, they studied 1,500 people, Western and Asian participants, who rated the emotions and bodily sensations evoked by both Western songs and Asian songs, right? Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know how they're defining Western and Asian. But anyway, so I'm just going to read this a little bit. When we hear our favorite catchy song, we are overcome with the urge to move to the music. Music can activate our um, autonomic, I guess? Yeah, autonomic, yeah. Autonomic. I've never seen that word before. Autonomic nervous system and even cause shivers down the spine. This new study shows how emotional music evokes similar body sens- bodily sensations across culture. Um, quote, music that evoked different emotions such as happiness, sadness or fear caused different bodily sensations in our study. For example... Happy and danceable music was felt in the arms and legs, while tender and sad music was felt in the chest area, explains Academy Research Fellow Vesa 
Kynan, Kynan? Anyway, they're saying since these sensations are similar across different cultures, music-induced emotions are likely independent of culture and learning and based on inherited biological mechanisms. That's, so, that's wild. Isn't it? And I love that the graphic they have here, they have this like heat map of different parts of, of, with like a bunch of different human-shaped bodies and... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's it's hard to describe this thing. Um, a heat map, and they have a body representing sad, scary, tender, aggressive, happy, danceable, and they show like where the music activated the sensation, depending on what kind of music it was. Anyway, go look at it. It's kind of cool looking. Check it out. It's really cool, and it, and it makes total sense, right? That this sort of yeah. resonates differently and literally in different parts of the body. Yeah, but uh, it yeah. doesn't. It's not different across cultures, right. which is right. kind of cool. Which I guess is why we, you know, when we hear music from different cultures, you still kind of get the vibe. Yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. musicians will tell you music is universal. Um, yes. All right, we're done uh, for today, which is uh, what is today? Wednesday. Back tomorrow, Thursday. Until then, uh, you know how to get a hold of us. Thoughts, questions, comments, praise. Criticism, take your pick. Make me smart, marketplace.org, or leave us a voicemail, 508-UB-SMART, S-M-A-R-T. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Juan Carlos Torado. Talia Menchaca is our intern. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music, composed in the past tense because they don't work anymore. Our senior producer, well, I guess it would have been past tense anyway because they're not still yeah. composing, are they? All right, got to hurry. Marissa Cabrera is the senior producer. Bridget Bonner's director of podcast. Francesca Levy is in charge. Okay, I got it. Yeah, you get, you made that's, it. That's all that matters. Got to hit the post, man. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.